the Mumbrella Finance Marketing Summit full program is not available. Check out all the confirmed speakers and sessions we have announced. And if you haven't already booked your ticket, hurry. Secure you and your team a place at the finance event of the year at mumbrella.com.au slash finance. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine, and today we're recording live from Mumbrella 360, our biggest in person event since 2019. Well, it won't be live by the time this gets to you. Um, bit of a fast and loose one for today's episode. We have a few news topics to get through. We're kind of weaved in with a couple of we interviews from today's event as well. You'll hear from Ann Parsons, Phil Hall, Margie Reed, Nicole Sparshot, Dr. Norman Swan, and the Mumbrella team. That team today joining me, acting managing editor Andrew Banks. Banksy, how are you doing? Great, great to be here, Cal. Great to see you in person. Kalila, journalist, how are you? I'm well, thanks. So nice to be in a crowd of people despite, um, maybe I shouldn't say that actually. <laughs> no, it's fine. You've had COVID yourself last week, so you're very I'm fine. I'm in the clear. welcome to say that. And a podcast, very exciting debut for editorial assistant Darcy Song. Thank you, Cullum, for taking me off the blacklist. Yeah, you were on the blacklist and it was a, it was a beautiful um, promotional read that you just kicked us off with there. H- how's everyone enjoying their first 360s? Obviously mine as well. Darcy, you've, uh, you, you're taking the, the, the show by storm. What, do you, what have you made of it so far? I think it's been going pretty well. Um, haven't seen anything extraordinary apart from Banksy's outfit. What did but, you think of the croissants? Um... No, no opinion. Haven't tried it. <laughs> well, you guys have been uh, slogging away this morning, getting our newsletter out. So, uh, doing the the engine room. Thanks, work. Cal. Yeah, well, we we all appreciate it. Khalil, what are you making of it so far? You'll be on stage tomorrow. I will be today. I've gotten to do a little bit of everything. Newsletter this morning, and I've had a chance to pop to a few sessions, which has been good. Everyone's saying good things. Everyone seems to be really keen to be here. So that's always nice to hear. Well, that's what we'd want people to think. That's uh, definitely what being, everyone is saying to us. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just add too, I'm really impressed with the team editorially and the events team have been really good. So it's been a good sesh so far. Well, I'm glad to hear that everyone thinks we're doing a good job from the Mumbrella team. Um, <laughs> Pat on the back, everyone. <laughs> so anyway, let's get to the first um, piece of news for this week. Um, Monday was looking like a bit of a quiet morning and then we got news that Woolworths Group subsidiary and retail media business Cartology has uh, agreed a deal to purchase Shopper Media for a cool $150 million um, in a deal that has sort of placed a significant emphasis on that business for Woolworths and kind of signals I guess it's importance to their strategy moving forward. Um, Kalila, can you just run us through a bit of the details of this one? Um, and then we'll kind of look at uh, you know, wh- where this might be taking um, Cartology. Yeah, sure. So a really big move um, for Cartology with Shopper having 2,000 screens across 400 shopping centres in Australia. So they are somewhat of a retail media giant um, in the market. The company rebranded from Shopper Media Group to Shopper in 2021 um, and there's been a few shifts at the company as well um, this year following um, the very sad passing of 
co-founder and CEO Ben Walker in January this year, after which his founding partner, Ed Kush, moved from the COO role into the CEO role. Um, In other news for the company, they also joined the Outdoor Media Association in March earlier this year. So a lot to come potentially from this purchase for Woolworths and Cartology. Um, What are your thoughts, Cal? It's it's a bit early to say, to be honest, because I think it will really depend on um, how Cartology looks to keep that business when they, well, when the deal eventually does go through, which they, I think, predicted to be close to the end of this year. Um, whether or not they decide to kind of see, keep it as a separate entity as, you know, that, that sort of separate um, digital out-of-home business to kind of complement um, cartology or whether they kind of bring it in and change the structure, kind of integrate Cooch and the, um, I think it's about 150 employees at Shopper. Mm. Um, that's off the top of my head. It could be incorrect. Spoke to Mike Tyquin um, briefly after the announcement yesterday and he said, it, again, it's a, a bit early to say on, in terms of the change in structure, whether it will stay that standalone business. Um, but for the next while, um, the Shopper business will kind of continue business as usual until that deal goes through. Um, although he did say it's an incredibly complimentary business um, that will fit well with the kind of group structure. Yeah, that's strange, Cal. We've got a situation where um, cartologies, on the one hand, they're saying that it's um, complimentary, but yet they're not at this stage prepared to. Well, I think it's just a bit early when the deal hasn't gone through to be, you know, I think they'd be very careful to not make any statements. I guess the deal isn't isn't done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the 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 space is certainly interesting at the moment. We saw the launch of a new um, business, Zitcher, a few weeks ago from um, Jack Byrne, the uh, founder and owner of Hatched Media, um, launched that with his business partner, Troy. Um, so, yeah, and then Cole's obviously launching, launching earlier this year. We'll have some stuff coming up on that in a few weeks. Do you think that the ACCC will approve it at the end of the year? Oh, you you would think so. I don't see why. I think it'll be really interesting, like, for example, if they do, you know, look at a more kind of integrated model, if they do bring Shopper into Cartology, what's that going to look like? Are you going to walk into a shopping centre and there's just Woolworths, like, or, you know, Cartology kind of media spots everywhere through the whole shopping centre? It feels like it, well, it, it could be of, really interesting them, how they're going to roll yeah. that out. It kind of gives them a pretty strong position in the market. Yeah, I mean, like kind of monopolizing a shopping center. It's an interesting proposition. That's a good point too because whenever I go to Kmart, I just think I'm in Anko. (laughs) Anyway, um, looking at um, staying on the topic of digital out of home, I I chatted to Global Media Advisor Ann Parsons who's over here um, with QMS for 360 alongside Ocean Outdoor UK's Joint Managing Managing Director Bill Hall about how the digital out of home space is sort of growing and how they're sort of discussing how it ties in with opportunities in the metaverse. Here's that interview now. So uh, Anne Parsons and Phil Hall here. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, You're preparing to go on stage very soon for your Mm -hmm. um, headline session here at Mumbrella 360. Phil, if you could just, I guess, run us through the top line, what what the session's about before we get into everything else. 
Yeah, I think really we're going to talk about um, digital out of home and the power of digital out of home, but more specifically about how that works in the metaverse. Um, Ocean Outdoor have, have entered the metaverse and, and dropped some sites into the metaverse. And I think what the audience will want to hear about is why we've done that, um, how transacting that sort of that digital out of home uh, method works in a virtual world and what the opportunities are for advertisers there. Yeah, and was this something maybe for you that seemed like a natural connection or is it something that maybe when you kind of look to delve into it a bit more you thought, oh, well, that does make a lot of sense? Well, we actually wanted to find um, a media owner who was already playing in the metaverse space so mm-hmm. that we were talking to someone who stepped in there and could speak from a position of real knowledge. Um, and I guess maybe not surprisingly, it was a digital out-of-home business that we identified because the the ongoing growth of digital out-of-home is, is totally inspired by what's happening digitally. And he was Ocean, who are um, arguably um, the most innovative and um, digitally connected out-of-home premium out-of-home yeah. player in, in the market. So that made the connection really very natural and a perfect running mate for us Um, and then it's Phil who's actually driving that um, in out of home and um, and for Ocean so hence the the conversation and every conversation that sprung from that it was just something that was a a perfect fit and what we believe is great um, education for the Australian market. Phil, what do you sort of make of the digital out-of-home market maybe in Australia at the moment, being a sort of premium player in that space? Do you think it is sort of, it is being adopted kind of as progressively as you would maybe like to see for the wider market? I think if you look at digital out-of-home in most of the developed countries in the world to where it is now to where it was seven or eight years ago, it's like night and day. It's, mm-hmm. And I think sometimes one of the frustrations that I have is I'm not sure all the time that that is recognised, whether it be by clients or the creative community or by or by the buy side. I think often it is, but there's still patches where people still think of out of home in, as it was a while back. And if you look at what's possible now with the, the quality of the screens, mm-hmm. um, the technological innovations, the, the increased creativity we see, the better content on those screens, there it's a really really strong advertising opportunity and I think we're in a world where you know I think most of us whether you're young or old are, are getting pretty adept at, at ad avoidance people can people put mm-hmm. ad blockers on their phones people fast forward through TV ads there's a lot of ad skipping going on wherever possible and you've got a medium in digital out of home that is unavoidable unskippable super premium great sight lines carrying increasingly interesting and engaging messages and so I think the future looks really bright. I think the yeah. present is really bright, but I think what's, what's as I think most people would accept that that ad avoidance on, on other media is only going to go one way, it's only going to go up, yeah. and yet the, the quality of the inventory and the messaging on digital out of home is getting better and better. That's a really interesting point that you raised too, Phil, because the there is a, a gap that hopefully will close quickly about how well creative is executed on a digital screen. And if you think about how much work and investment and joy creative on the television screen has given, does give, some of that needs to start migrating to a digital out-of-home screen because the the big audiences of television are now there on an out-of-home screen. Um, The opportunity for 
um, motion but for content is there so it, it's still pretty much an area that has not been um, capitalized upon yeah I, I, I totally agree with that mm. I think well, I was walking through the city it's my first time in Sydney for 20 years yeah. and the, the city's <laughs> changed a lot and I, I walked past some of the new QMS screens that yeah. have gone in as part of the city of, of Sydney contract and they're beautiful looking and these these are high quality screens that you would happily have in your front room and I, I think the, the challenge to advertise is, is to think about that how you can put that really strong creative message into street furniture there mm. because it's going to deliver and it's going to yeah. engage and mm. um, um, we kind of, you know, you speak about some of these really creative opportunities. From your, I guess you've got this incredible background across multidisciplinary media space. Whose onus do you think it is to kind of continue to drive that product and the the, the creative, I guess, product that we're going to actually be, end up be seeing on these screens? I know we do have these fantastic examples, you know, in Times Square and mm-hmm. Shanghai where mm-hmm. you see these fantastic pieces of digital Mm -hmm. out of home Mm -hmm. to make that more ubiquitous who do you think where's the onus on that well i think it's a real collaborative thing um i think that it's media agency with creative agency and the media owner needs to be involved as well the more that we go down this path of engagement and attention the media owners are through their own investment into research understanding a great deal about how that's working and how it works for digital out of home so some of that learning can help creatives really hone in on what's going to work but I think that a genuine genuine valuing of what's happening creatively and that that is you know it's the old thing it's been the the classic in media agencies forever I bet I'm sure you'll agree Phil the old get the creative guys involved early on and let them understand that this is going to be a digital out of home campaign so that they can really spend time thinking about how they they want to bring that to life but it's not it's no one's fault but it's the good old lack of communication Mm -hmm. collaboration that needs to happen a bit more yeah, it's interesting. We're seeing, I guess, the rise in that value and appreciation of the digital out of home space mm-hmm. this week. Woolworths Group purchased. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw Shopper Media for a, a cool price of 150, 150. million. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we're definitely seeing the opportunities there, and it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But a- absolutely, um, and Ocean have had their own experience in being um, extremely well valued, and recently purchased at a at only a very fine, fair, but nevertheless high (laughs) price. And that's because it is recognised as being what I would say is like the future screen and and what television was because it has that kind of capability. In a marketplace where getting big reach is really disappearing for every other channel, that's okay because that's just the evolution of media, Mm -hmm. but the last woman standing is digital out of home. Well, um, I appreciate both of you making the time and look forward to your session this afternoon. Thank you very much. With pleasure. Next up, Thinkabell signaled last Friday afternoon that it's looking to launch into New Zealand uh, if it can find the right partners. I caught up with CEO Margie Reed today at our event for a quick chat about that. Here it is. Margie Reed, CEO of Thinkabell, how are you? Great, thanks, Kel. How are you? I'm fantastic. Loving uh, the busy day here at 360. Um, big buzz. Yeah, did you catch Adam's session before? 
No, I didn't. <laughs> I missed it. But I did see Anuba from Lion, so she was fantastic on the uh, culture stage. Well, I hope you'll stick around and see a few more sessions. So the reason we wanted to chat is that on Friday you sent out, um, or what, you and the agency sent out, uh, I guess, your intentions to launch into New Zealand. It would be great to... I guess get your perspective on why now is the time to kind of signal that and uh, the thoughts behind it. Absolutely and that's obviously if uh, New Zealanders will have us we certainly don't want to you know take Australia over to New Zealand we want to be a New Zealand based business um, building on obviously a market that is just so rich with creativity and we are all about creativity if we can't be in uh, the world's uh, mecca of creativity then um, yeah. um, and we want to be part of you know creativity where it lives and breathes um, at its utmost. And it is, it is very uh, preliminary at this stage, isn't it? You're kind of getting the feelers out, getting the bit of matchmaking going. Is that kind of the plan? You're, you're heading over there as well? Yep, heading over there, having some um, meetings with different people. And we're literally early days to see if the right partners, and, and that's business partners who would have an equity in Thinkerbell with us, um, would be in the market and, and ready to, to do it together. Do you see do you see Thinkabell as being a good fit for New Zealand? I know the Australian and New Zealand markets are often kind of lumped in together, you know, we see it with all these executive roles there, ANZ roles. Do you think that's just a natural progression? Um, from the response, absolutely. We've been um, inundated with responses and the welcoming um, nature of it, you know, from people who want to just have a chat with us through to people who want to be business partners. It's um, absolutely phenomenal. So if the timing's right and the, the people are right, then um, hopefully, you know, it'll be the right business decision for us. And we were talking about um, with my, our colleague, my, sorry, our colleague, you don't work for Mumbrella, um, my colleague Kalila before about um, how Thinkabell is just kind of producing work at a pretty prolific rate at the moment. Do you think that, that first of all, I guess, why is that at the moment that, that you've got so much output and do you think that will be a good thing to kind of showcase what the company is and diversity of what you produce to any potential partners? Absolutely. I think it goes back to our model. Um, you know, Measure Magic is our proposition, but how we lean into solving problems in a way that is, you know, both from a, a macro level of, of solving you know, brand problems through to how do you go down the funnel with a client, but that's also across the spectrum from brand, you know, to the distribution across paid, owned and earned um, and, and shared, sorry. So um, I guess because of that depth and breadth, it allows us to be creating quite a lot of work. And um, from a New Zealand point of view, I think it absolutely will. I mean, creativity is is driven in that market and from the response of the people that we're, we're having chats with. Um, I think they're, they're hungry for our model and I think there's an appetite to at least see if Thinkabell East, as we call it, can work in that market. All that's left is West then and you'll have them all ticked off. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks for, um, thanks for coming on and saying hi, Maggie. Thanks, Kel. Have a good day. And Kalila, as we heard there, obviously early days, but what is your thoughts on um, potentially launching a third market East for Thinkabell? I think that it, really makes sense for them, to be honest. Um, so a couple of years ago, July 2020, the agency was sitting at about 57 staff members. Uh, and according to LinkedIn, um, they're now at around 122. So that's more than doubling in the last few years or last couple of years, I should say. So I guess going, you know, across the sea is it makes sense for them. The next step, they've all, they're also looking to um, 
move into a new bigger Sydney office in the next couple of months. Um, and they've obviously got their office down in Melbourne. So it's kind of looking like they're on a, on a pretty steady growth trajectory. So, um, yeah, it seems like the next natural step, as I was saying to Margie earlier today, they're producing a lot of work locally alone. So um, I think, you know, moving into New Zealand, that would just kind of step up their capacity as well to continue producing um, the kind of unique work they've been doing at the moment. Yeah, it's um, interesting when they when you've got the kind of naming strategy of um, north in Sydney, south in Melbourne, and then I think they're referring to this as east, as Margie kind of said, I said, to her in that interview there, all that's left is West. So um, you wonder when they do mm. eventually look to expand beyond there, what kind of naming structure they'll... Perth. Yeah, Perth. <laughs> Perth. Well, yeah, one to look out for there. Um, um, speaking of Thinkabell, Darcy, you were on hand to catch the session today, the indies that broke through the barrier and how they did it, which uh, featured Thinkabell's co-founder, Adam Ferrier. Who else was on that one and um, what did you make of it? Um, I was indeed there. And I think along joining Adam in the session, there were also Philip Smith from Apparent. There, yeah, there were also James Dixon from Atomic 212 and also Lindsay Evans from Special Group. I think overall it was a very interesting session and it was it was a full house. I walked in like three minutes late and literally couldn't find a spot like in the first 20 rolls. Yeah, that's so, good. So, yeah. It was, yeah, it was a very interesting session. I think overall it's very good to see how indies are coming through in, I guess, an industry where a lot of the assets are dominated kind of by network agencies and they, so how they're sort of having their own brand positioning. And it's very, it's great to hear how they were saying that they're not constrained by traditional ways of working and that sort of provides them with a point of difference and how long-term relationship was really valuable to indies as well. I mean, yeah, it's very it's very evident with works like Uber Eats that was conducted by specials and all that. So, yeah, it was a very interesting session. Yeah, indies definitely having a moment in the world. They're, uh, they're, they're definitely a crowd drawer at these events. So, um, yeah. Uh, moving on, next up, let's hear from Dr. Norman Swan, who I caught up with this morning after his keynote chat with uh, our MC Darren Woolley. We have Dr. Norman Swan here, fresh off the stage at Mumbrella 360 after his um, fireside chat with Darren Woolley. How did you enjoy that, Norman? Oh, it was fun and a big audience. It was great, a very responsive audience. It was fantastic. So I, I didn't unfortunately catch the session. I was downstairs on stage, but I figured we could just chat about I, I'd be interested to hear from your perspective after sort of being in a sense, the face of the COVID response and a media platform, What you, how you thought the medium of podcasting kind of functioned in getting that really crucial messaging out day to day? Uh, well, from my point of view, it was critical because yeah. we created this podcast called CoronaCast at ABC, which rapidly went to several million downloads a month and uh, with an extraordinary sweep across the, the populace. And we did it every day, well, five days a week. And it became the go-to place for people to get information and so uh, I learned a lot about podcasting mm -hmm. by doing this it was extraordinary I would never have believed it when we had something like 200,000 questions within two or three months of yeah. starting the uh, podcast yeah I mean it, I mean I was I was a daily listener of the podcast myself on a morning walk which was all we could really do in Melbourne right. um, I'd be interested to hear what that was kind of like for you on a personal note sort of being 
the lightning rod or the face of that response did it have a sort of personal toll at any point with you i imagine you had a lot of interaction online as well from the wider australian community i learned to ignore my twitter feed um, and really back off social media um, because it can be quite toxic um, there were times where yeah, the attacks, and there still are, I mean, we're speaking now, only two days ago I got attacked in the media. So people don't like some of the messages that come when you talk from a science base, and yeah. when ideology gets in the way. So there were some stressful times, but most of the times it was fine. Um, yeah. you, you at least had something to do and felt you were doing some good. And, and did you find, I guess, doing it daily and you know, very early in the morning, was there any sort of pressure there in order to get that messaging right and ensure that all the, I guess, the messaging that you had going out was correct and, I guess, was pushing things in the right direction? <laughs> that was a huge part of the task. Yeah. Um, we usually recorded late afternoon, mm-hmm. but there were times where we came back nearly at midnight. It was posted at about 4 a.m. Yeah. We came back at midnight to fix it up because things had changed. Things changed really rapidly. Um, and we just tried to get the balance of information right. But the key was trust. And if we made a mistake or information changed, we didn't hang around. We just got right back in and corrected it. Yeah. Well, Dr. Norman, thanks for joining me and appreciate you showing up to Mumbrella 360 no, this year. It's been my pleasure. Great fun. On to the next news item. Uh, another week talking about Dentsu. This uh Early yesterday morning, a report from a trade publication, MI3, said that Danny Bass looks set to be joining Dentsu Media as CEO after he recently left Snap, inciting that he was going to be focusing on his health retreat, Berry Hill Farm. Used to work with Danny. Did you? At News Corp? Correct. Yeah, well, there you go, Banksy. Maybe you're in the running for the uh, Dentsu job as well. Um, Kalila, <laughs> this wasn't the only move um, this week from Dentsu, though, was it? They made another appointment in APAC. What's the uh, score there? Um, today, the new, the announcement of new APAC CEO Rob Gilby came out. Um, he is set to uh, – so according to Dentsu, this isn't going to change any of the local structure with a new um, local Australian CEO still on the way to replace um, – Angela Tangus after she departs later this year to take on the UK and I role. Um, so Gilby will report to Global Dentsu CEO Wendy Clark. I found it interesting when this came through because, you know, we have kind of been waiting um, quite a lot to hear how things play out at Dentsu. They do have a couple of those executive roles there. Um, and it's sort of been a case of, you know, will they change the structure? They've got the new Dentsu creative structure. Will they then look to just implement a Dentsu Media and then I thought maybe they would just have them reporting into APAC. But yeah, as you said there, we spoke to them and that is not the case. So yeah, all eyes still on Dentsu as we um as we wait to hear what they will come out with and you know also whether or not they will um confirm the appointment of Danny Bass with a few other names still um being thrown out there at the moment. Um yeah Dentsu again said they don't comment on speculation. Um, back to you again, Kalila. Ten had a pretty good week after it tied up MasterChef last week. Um, it launched its new format show, Hunted, which has since performed pretty well. I only caught the first ten minutes on Sunday night, but um, seems like a lot of Australians liked it. Yeah, Ten would have to be pretty chuffed with their performance over the last week or so, I think. 
last week, having wrapped up MasterChef, obviously um, a favourite amongst Australian viewers, it um, they did top entertainment, I think, with the finale and potentially um, part one of the finale as well. It did happen over a few episodes. Um, and at that point they also um, beat seven in terms of overall um, share, which that, is – That was on Monday? No, they did that last week too. So last week the finale of MasterChef – brought in a massive 755,000 Metro viewers. That's as linear. On li- yeah. yeah, linear, um, as well as 80, 875,000 who tuned in for the winner announcement, um, which significantly bumped up 10's um, overall share, bringing them into second place ahead of seven, which is obviously a little bit of a shift from the norm. Um, and it's happened again this week, which is is pretty big for the network, with their new show, Hunted, having um, – consistently topped entertainment for the first couple of nights of its run. Um, the new format, I, my housemate tuned into the episode and told my entire household that we all have to catch up because apparently it's that good. Um, and that seems to kind of be the vibe, I guess, with it consistently having the numbers. Um, Interesting. But they, um, yeah, as I said, they came second again on Monday night in terms of overall share. And they didn't manage to score that again on Tuesday night. But, you know, I think getting it twice in a matter of a week um, is probably something that they're, they're not too upset with. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that format plays out. I think, Banksy, we were talking about it on our team chat. Uh, the, the format didn't fare so well overseas. Was that right? Absolutely. I think Hunted is a, one of those series that does well initially when people are not used to seeing it, I think in Britain they only had one series and in America they only agreed to one series. So it's pretty much a one and done. One and done, yeah. Yeah. Producer Callum here, just doing a quick fact check on something that was mentioned there. Unfortunately, uh, in um, the research for this episode, there's another UK drama called Hunted, which was axed after one season. But in fact, the UK version of Hunted, the reality program, did run for multiple seasons. Cheers. Yeah, so as you say, kind of bucking the the usual trend with those nine and seven kind of uh, taking the overall share and it will be um, interesting to see how 10 kind of continues to move in that way because I've had a few well rating shows with um, have you been paying attention the cheap seats returning which has proved to be popular and then again seems like they're going down to the wire with reports on the uh, AFL they're battling it out with um, with seven and Foxtel still to get that completed. Uh, now a quick catch up with Unilever's Australian New Zealand CEO Nicole Sparshot, who I chatted with today after her session at the sustainability stage hosted by the Works. Fresh off the stage, uh, Nikki Sparshot, CEO at Unilever Australia New Zealand. Thank you for joining us. How did you enjoy that experience? I love being in a room with other people that have different perspectives, and I'm like a sponge. I I take away more than I probably give. So I, w- I was lucky enough to be in the room there for, on the Sustaining Tomorrow stage looking at um, how brands are kind of incorporating sustainability into their full business strategy. With, with a company like Unilever where you have so many kind of unique different brands, how do you ensure that whatever your sustainability journey, journey is equally distributed and kept up, I guess, by all those different brands? 
Yeah, so I mean, it starts with understanding the people that we serve. So who is the consumer? How can the brand play a role in their life that's meaningful? And what is the appropriate salient way of building in purpose and sustainability into that agenda? And we just make it a non-negotiable for all of our brands. So we want every single brand in our portfolio to have a point of view in that space and some material action that makes a difference. What makes it unique about Unilever? I know you've kind of been making this a focus for quite a bit of time and you know, we had some other brands that are kind of jumping on that now, which is, you know, very necessary. But why has it been so central to Unilever for so long? I think it started with our forefathers like 100 plus years ago. They always had this um, sensibility around producing products that actually serve society. So, you know, Sir Lord Lever actually, he wanted to democratise access to hygiene through a soap bar Mm -hmm. so that Victorian England could all have access to hygiene. It's always been part of what we do. But I think what has made it such an important accelerator in the last 10 years or more is that it's come from the top and it's part of our organisational culture. Well, Nikki, I know you've got a flight to catch, so I appreciate it and thanks for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. Now, before we get out of here, any last notes from the the day's events so far? Anything you're looking forward to over the next day and a half? Or Probably half? the the party afterwards would be nice, just to sort of meet a lot of people from the industry. So I'm really looking forward to that with because it's been all business uh, this morning. So it's been nice to just kind of relax a bit after the first day. Yeah, look, there's a few more sessions I'm keen to catch um, and just, you know, writing up a few of the sessions we caught this morning. And, of course, cocktail party will be nice. That's always it's always good besides the fact that I have to be back here at 7.30 tomorrow or something. <laughs> and then this you're, one- you're staying here, aren't you, Cal? <laughs> I have to be back here at 7.30 a.m. tomorrow um, for a full day of moderating. And I must say my most anticipated session for the day has to be the live Mumbrella cast. You know what? I've been looking forward to that one as well. I heard <laughs> yeah. it's going to be I think really that good. I think that I've heard it, it's been fully booked out. People have already been yeah, putting been their name down for the seats. session. Well, There's that, a long wait list. This has been a paid that. presentation. <laughs> yeah, we've got um, Deloitte Digital's Nick Garrett and um, M. Haysom from Suncorp Group joining me on stage for that. And that will be released on Tuesday as a special episode. So, Are you going to chat, Kat? Like their, their big win? Yes, we will be chatting about that, amongst, that amongst everything else. So we're getting two pods for the price of one. Exactly. These Lucky listeners. Anyway, let's leave things there because I know we've all got places to be, shows to see and people to talk to. Thank you for joining us this week. And uh, yeah, get on mumbrella.com.au for all the, the content from the event uh, as yes. well as the usual stuff. Um, thank you, Kalila. Thank you, Darcy. Thank you, Banksy. Thank you. Thanks, Cal. I have had so much fun. And thanks to everyone else that joined us today. See you next week. Bye.